morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. Today is Tuesday, June the 28th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. Ethiopia is denying accusations that its army captured and executed seven Sudanese soldiers and a civilian, blaming the killings on a local militia. In South Africa, authorities are continuing their investigation into the death of at least 21 teenagers at a popular local tavern in Eastern Cape province. Uh, these youngsters are believed to have been partying throughout the night. Largely, these were school children that were said to be celebrating the end of term uh, that they call pens downs or pens off, just that break. In Ghana, civil society groups and opposition parties plan to organize a two-day protest to pressure the government for solutions to high rising food prices. The high cost of living, the insensitivity of the government towards the plight of the people of Ghana, the near collapse of every sector of our Ghanaian nation. And U.S. President Joe Biden has extended and expanded eligibility for deferred enforcement departure for Liberians living in the United States. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, the government of Ethiopia is denying accusations that its army had captured and executed seven Sudanese soldiers and a civilian, saying that the killings were committed by a local militia. There has been renewed disagreements between the two countries over ownership of a fertile Al-Fashka border region. On Monday, Sudan's foreign ministry said that its soldiers were seized on Sudanese territory on June the 22nd and taken into Ethiopia where they were killed. Ethiopia's foreign ministry denied the accusation, saying that the facts of the incident were misrepresented and that the death were a result of a skirmish between Sudanese soldiers who they said had staged an incursion into Ethiopian land. It promised to conduct further investigation about the incident. Sudan's foreign ministry say that it was summoning the Ethiopian ambassador in Khartoum, calling on its own ambassador back from Addis Ababa for discussions while it prepares to lodge a formal complaint to the UN Security Council. In South Africa, authorities are continuing with their investigation into the death of at least 21 teenagers at a local tavern in Eastern Cape province. Preliminary reports rolled out a stampede as cause of death, saying that the young people, mostly students, were either poisoned by something they ate, drunk or inhaled in smoke. Expressing his condolences, President Cerro Ramaphosa said that he was concerned about the circumstances under which the young people were allowed to gather at the tavern. For more on this story, I reached reporter Tuso Komalo in Johannesburg, who tells me that Many of the students from the area schools were at the tavern to celebrate the end of school exams. These youngsters are believed to have been partying throughout the night. Largely, these were school children that were said to be celebrating the end of term uh, that they call pens downs or pens off, just that break. So it is believed that uh, they thronged this uh, a place uh, is a tavern, a tavern, a licensed tavern where they decided they're going to party the whole night. But uh, 
the numbers were so overwhelming they are in the in the in the hundreds if you look at the videos it, it definitely shows that the place was overcrowded it, it was initially reported that the cause of death was due to a stampede in the tavern but it was later changed is there an understanding by the authorities as to what exactly caused the death of these young people in terms of the cause of death, there was that speculation that it was stampeded, but uh, it was later established even by uh, the, the, the family members that their bodies had no injuries in terms of what, uh, what should happen when there was a stampede. According to one uh, person who manages the place, he says when he was called at, after one child collapsed, he, he saw that they were collapsing one after the other, other slumbing on the tables, uh, giving indications that uh, they could have inhaled something. And uh, this is what also caused some kind of uh, stampede as they were going out. But uh, the majority of them uh, have no wounds to show that it was a stampede that caused the, the, the death. But investigators are saying they are still hard at work. They are leaving no stone unturned. Uh, they have those speculations. But so far, they are saying uh, they have not for sure established that it is the cause because uh, forensic uh, is, uh, the investigations, especially the pathologists, are looking at the bodies just to ascertain as to what caused the, the, the death. So according to authorities, according to the government, and uh, according to investigators, uh, they have not yet arrived at a conclusion as to whether they inhaled something, but the uh, stampede is being ruled out largely. Yeah. Okay, and, and President Cyril Ramaphosa said that he was worried about the circumstances under which they died. Uh, what has been the response so far from local authorities? Is there a sense that this has been contained and it is not likely to happen again, given some, again, some of the market details on the cause of death? Already the, the nightclub or the tavern in, 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 in question has been shut down already by authorities and even the liquor board was saying their license should be withdrawn because uh, what made the president to say is worried as you'd know that uh, the youngest of the children was 13 years, uh, just between 13 and 17. Uh, so these are youngsters that should have not been in the bar, that should have not been drinking a beer there. So authorities also found uh, uh, with their Pens down there, especially with the police. Uh, parents saying the police, if the police were patrolling and uh, making sure that uh, the youngsters are not in that tavern, this thing should have not happened. So we've got a lot of finger pointing as well there, uh, authorities saying that should have been avoided. But so far, uh, there was a meeting, a mayoral meeting in the area, uh, trying to look at uh, how to avoid such things from happening, but uh, causing shockwaves uh, from uh, the, the Ramaphosa himself, the ministers, and uh, also uh, the parents, especially the parents of these youngsters. That was reporter Tuso Kumalo. I reached him in Johannesburg. U.S. President Joseph Biden has extended and expanded eligibility for Deferred Enforcement Departure, DED, for Liberians living in the United States. The U.S. since 1991 has provided safe haven for Liberians who fled civil war in their country by granting them temporary protected status, TPS. Liberians faced deportation at the end of the civil war in 2003, but President George H.W. Bush granted them deferred enforcement departure. Since then, successive U.S. presidents have extended the process on a yearly basis. 
In a memorandum issued Monday, June the 27th, President Biden extended the deferred enforced departure through June 30th, 2024, citing U.S. foreign policy interests. Diane Konate is policy director for African Communities Together, which has been lobbying for the deferment. She tells VOS James Barty that her organization is excited by President Biden's announcement because it covers more categories of Liberians. You know, we were disappointed at the end of last year that we could not get another extension of the um, Elvis deadline. We worked with our congressional partners to try to get it done again this year, but we're unsuccessful with that. But, you know, very, very excited that the Biden administration decided to extend um, DED after being requested to do so by congressional partners. This deferment has been going on through successive U.S. presidents. As someone who has been tracking this, is there anything different in what President Biden has done compared to other uh, U.S. presidents? I mean, it's the same protection that the president of the United States has the authority to give. Um, So in that way, it's very similar. But we're excited about this extension because not only does it extend DED for people who previously had DED, but it also expands it to cover more people. So a lot of the times when you see these extensions, it only covers the people who had the protection before. When the president says in this uh, memorandum, about this announcement covering individuals who are subject to extradition, individuals who have voluntarily returned to Liberia or their country of last habitual residence outside the United States for an aggregate period of 180 days or more. Mm-hmm. What does this mean? Well, those are people who would not qualify for this DED protection. So people who have already left the U.S and, you know, voluntarily returned to Liberia, those people do not qualify for, you know, DED protection, including anybody who is subject to extradition. They would not be qualified for this DED protection. What I hear from people is that, okay, if the war in Liberia has ended, why do people still have the need to want to stay? What do you hear from Liberians who have been going through this uh, temporary protected status Well, I mean, a lot of the people who have been protected through DED and TPS are people who have been in the U.S. since, like, the 90s. So a lot of people who have been protected, a lot of Liberians who have been protected, um, have been in the U.S. for 20, 30 years. They've, you know, built lives here. They have U.S. citizen children. They have homes here. They have businesses here. So just because, you know, the war in Liberia ended and the situation might have changed, it doesn't make sense to send people who have been in the U.S. living for 30 years and who have built their lives here to send them back. Another issue is that despite the fact that um, the Civil War has ended in Liberia, we don't think that Liberia is necessarily in the place where it can have all of the thousands of Liberians being deported from the U.S. and sent back to Liberia. Diana Konate, thank you so much Mm -hmm. for taking time to talk with us. Thanks, James. I really appreciate it. That was Diana Konate, Policy Director for African Communities Together. She was speaking from Washington, D.C. with VOA's James Batty.
You're listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. The High Court in Malawi has sentenced a priest and a police officer to 30 years in prison and a clinician to 60 years for taking part in the murder of a 22-year-old albino person. The three were among 12 people, including a brother of the deceased, found guilty last month of plotting to kill and murdering the albino and selling the man's body parts. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. In her judgment Monday, Judge Dolothe Nyagaunda Gamanga sentenced five people to life imprisonment with hard labor for the death of McDonald Masambuka. Judge Gamanga also sentenced Catholic priest Thomas Muhosha, police officer Chikondi Chileka, and the three others to 30 years imprisonment with hard labor on charges of transacting in human tissue. Clinician Lumbani Gamanga received a 60-year term on charges of extraction of human tissue. Masambuka went missing from his village on March 9, 2018. Less than a month later, his limbless body was found buried in the garden of a home where one of the assailants lived in the Machinga district in the south of Malawi. Court documents show that Masambuka's brother, Kasim, enticed him to meet his brother's friends. The documents say the brother claimed he had found a girl for McDonald Masambuka to marry. But authorities say that when the group reached their destination, they grabbed McDonald Masambuka by the neck and dragged him into the garden where they killed him. The documents say his assailants cut off his limbs and burned his body using gasoline. Kasim Masambuka was sentenced to life in prison for murder, along with a 14-year sentence for trafficking in persons. Pirilani Masanjala represented the government in the case. He said he was happy with the judgment. It ensures that all the persons who have been found, charged, and convicted of these types of heinous crimes will face the full arm of the law. So that is something that for us as um, uh, the director of, director of Harry Prosecutions, we are uh, um, happy to see that that, that that is what the courts are doing nowadays. The national government has not commented on the sentences, but has previously condemned the attacks on albinos. The lawyer for the convicted individuals, Masahuko Chankakala, said he would speak with his clients on the way forward. Attacks on albinos are a chronic problem in Malawi and some other southern African countries. A representative of people with albinism at the court, William Masapi, said the sentences serve as a deterrent to such attacks. Because we are also human beings, we need to enjoy the life as everyone else. We have responsibilities in this country. Some of us are working in the government, are taking part in the development of this country. So people should learn from today that we people with albinism, we are like them. Boniface Chibwana, the National Coordinator for Catholic Commission for Justice and Peace in Malawi, welcomed the sentencing. He also said there is a need to intensify efforts to stop the attacks. If you look at the high-level personnel, three people uh, that are working with the government, that are working with the church, are being involved in this case. So I think the issue is really um, putting the momentum in as far as the sensitization is concerned uh, so that uh, we put to a stop uh, issues of killings and abductions of persons of in this country. In the meantime, the Catholic Church in Malawi 
says it is working on the process of removing Mohosha from the priesthood. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. And let's go to West Africa in Ghana, where civil society groups and opposition parties under the umbrella Arise Ghana plan to organize a two-day protest in the capital, Accra, beginning Tuesday. The group aims to pressure the government for solutions to high-rising food prices, essential commodities, and crushing economic conditions. Arise Ghana won a judgment on Monday after the police petitioned the court over disagreements about the time and location of the protests. Police asked the organizers to consider changing the time of the demonstration and move the organizers refused. The court ruled that the protesters can proceed as planned but said that President's office and residence, Jubilee House, is off limits. For more on the protests and the latest political developments, VOA's Peter Clotty reached Bernard Mona. He's a leading member of the protest organizers and leader of the political pressure group Justice for Ghana. A group of Ghanaians who feel very betrayed by President Akufado, the high cost of living, the insensitivity of the government towards the plight of the people of Ghana, the near collapse of every sector of our Ghanaian nation, and the levels of corruption that has engulfed every sector. And indeed, corruption has become the second national anthem of our nation. Feel that the only legitimate way we can express our frustrations is to go on a public manifestation so as to draw the president's attention that his government has filled the aspirations of the people of Ghana. We have just come out of the court, and the court has ruled that the demonstration will come on and that we as citizens are enjoined to go ahead to ensure that we do it earlier than um, our intended, say, up to 10 p.m. So, Bernard, are you saying that the protests planned for Tuesday and Wednesday will will only be in Accra, and if the government fails to respond, you will organize a series of demonstrations nationwide? And precisely. For now, we are organizing it in Accra. That is the capital city of corruption. And so we want to ensure that the government, that is the seat of government, don't forget that the intention was to cloud at the uh, Flagstaff House. The judge is not permitting that. They are using terrorism as the basis for which, and they said terrorism or terrorist attack in Togo. The terror attack in Togo took place in the daytime and not in the night. But for we, the people of Ghana, the main terrorists are the economic hardship that confront the people of Ghana. The main terrorists include the alarming fuel pricing, the increasing cost of living, the unemployment that is eating all of us up, and the profligate expenditure of President Akufado and his government. These are the terrorists that are making life more difficult and more inhumane for the people of Ghana. But Bernard, what do you say to those who are of the view and are saying that the economic impact of COVID coupled with the ongoing conflict or invasion of Ukraine by Russia, 
uh, has really battered a lot of economies around the world. Even Western nations are feeling the pinch. Prices of goods and essential services have gone up. And Ghana is not uh, the only country to feel the global impact uh, of the worsening economic situation. So what you are doing, they said, is just a mere publicity exercise to make the government unpopular. How do you respond to that? Well, since we have decided to play the devil advocates when there is no devil, let me respond to them that, including the United States of America, where you are interviewing me from, where COVID had a massive impact and not in Ghana, the impact of COVID cannot be said to be greater in Ghana than the United States of America. No government under the sun, aside that of President Akufado, has imposed taxes on COVID. That the fact that we have been ravaged by COVID and businesses collapsed, that citizens should be forced to pay taxes because COVID existed. It is only in Ghana, so we are pay, paying COVID-19 tax. Are you paying COVID-19 tax in the United States of America? That was Bernard Mona, a leading member of the protest organizers and leader of the political pressure group Justice for Ghana. He was speaking to VOS Peter Cloti from Accra, Ghana. And still in West Africa, in Nigeria, a Gallup survey says that only one in four Nigerians have confidence in the government, the lowest level in 12 years and the lowest level across Africa. Anlise, worsening security and a struggling economy have jaded many Nigerians. To combat apathy ahead of next year's elections, activist groups and the European Union have organized a series of concerts to encourage young Nigerians to get involved and register to vote. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. Hundreds of young people chanted joyously Saturday at a concert in Abuja, listening to some of Nigeria's biggest music stars. The concert was set up to encourage voter registration among young people. There were at least 50 registration points for attendees to either register or verify already existing voter cards. The artists, one after another, took to the stage to serenade the crowd, but with clear messages encouraging them to vote in elections early next year. The initiative was organized by a joint team comprising of the European Union, Nigerian Independent Electoral Body, RINEC, and civil society organizations to boost voter participation, especially among young people, which authorities say was below 20% in 2019. INEC chairman Mahmoud Yakubu says thousands of people signed up to vote at the concert. We are still registering today, but in five days, we registered over 14,000 Nigerians in this place alone. We will not stop the registration until we are satisfied that those who wish to register are given the opportunity. Young people constitute about 70% of Nigeria's total population, but youth participation in politics has been low. People who registered at the concert say successive governments have let the country down, and that's why they want to make their voices heard at the ballot box. Hamza Yusuf registered to vote during Saturday's concert. You can see everybody coming out, you know. Basically, with the concert, like, it help people. You know, it makes people want to, you know, get off their couches from their homes. Like, say, we're all tired of, the, of, how, of how, the, how our governance is. 
Francis Atama also registered to vote at the concert. In the recent past, there have been a high level of bad governance and then uh, uh, youth node inclusiveness in the government. Samson Itodo, the executive director of the Youth Initiative for Advocacy, Growth and Advancement, Yaga Africa, predicts young people will assume a greater role in Nigerian politics. Nigerian youths have made a bold statement that they have not lost hope in Nigeria. The crowd that you've seen here in their thousands is a demonstration of the fact that a lot of young people are very determined to cast their votes. There are over 10,000 people here today who have come to register. Presidential and National Assembly elections are slated for February 25th of next year, while governor and state assembly elections will take place in March. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We are also